0: So, we're going to be reading uh, Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to the end of the chapter today. And um, uh, you're stuck with me today. Pastor Nick is in Tennessee, I believe, at a wedding. Is that right? So, um, so you're stuck with me. Um, but I want, to just, uh, I want to mention today, before we read that passage, that uh, just to give you a little, another little twist on Malachi. Um, Malachi, previous to Malachi, the prophet, speaking to Israel... Uh, in this book here, this little book that we have, uh, Haggai and Zechariah. So, so if you remember, uh, Zechariah, not Zacchaeus, Zechariah, it's hard to say those two things back to back, right? But the children of Israel had been in exile for 70, which turned into 90 years, and they, they had come out of exile, but the city of Jerusalem was in shambles, and you know the story of Nehemiah who rebuilt the wall, and then Haggai and Zechariah urged and nudged the children of of God to to rebuild the temple, and so the temple had been rebuilt. Uh, the city was somewhat back to where it was supposed to be, and but the problem is, is that the people assumed that. By rebuilding the temple and doing what God had said, that it would usher in this sort of messianic age. Like it would bring about the fulfillment, ultimately, of the great promise of God to, for the Messiah to come. And all the covenant blessings would be restored to the people and all would be well again. Well, years had passed and that had not happened. And so the people of God had grown weary and they had begun to doubt God. Is God faithful? Is he good? Is he loving? In fact, every chapter in this book begins with a question, a wrestling, and God is addressing their doubts and their fears and their struggles because they're starting to say, Is God, is God really good? Is he just? Does he love us? Is he really paying attention? Is he really going to be faithful to his promises? And so that's what's actually going on in this, in this little book called Malachi. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna dive into that a little bit more. But let's stand as we read God's word this morning. And I'm getting old, so I have to put these on. I know this is a new thing for me. All right. So Malachi chapter three, verse uh, verses six to eighteen. Verses six to eighteen. We stand at the reading of God's word because it's His word to us. And so let us honor uh, His word as we hear it this morning. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is in vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant bless. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this incredible word that we have before us this morning, a raw, a real tangible word from you that speaks, I pray, to our hearts and our minds, that we too would consider how this word uh, touches our own lives right here today in 2022. And so, Lord, would you you instruct us, would you help me as I seek to unpack and just talk about this text today? May it be worthwhile and valuable to our own souls. May your spirit work mightily in us. And encourage your church today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So the people of God, throughout these chapters, they're doubting God's love. They're doubting God's worth. That's why they have half-hearted leaders, half-hearted worship. They're doubting God's justice. They're doubting God's goodness. They're doubting God's faithfulness. They're doubting God, period. They, They are looking out at life. They're looking at everyone around them, and they're saying, is God truly faithful? Does God truly keep his promises at all? This is what they're saying. It's easy for us to read a story like this, maybe from where we're sitting, and it's easy for us to sort of get down on the Israelites, right? Be like, what is your problem? I mean, can you guys just wake up a bit, right? Because, because hasn't God done so many things? Like, if you just read back through the pages of this book, you can see the faithfulness of God, right? What is their problem? Did God not part the sea for them? Did he not bring them to the very land that they're standing in right now when they're having this conversation with God? Did he not do the things that he said he was going to do? And we can look at that and we can get really down on them. But let me, let me just take a moment before we dive into the verses of this text. Let me try to make this real to you and I. You see, I think that Malachi, we have a conversation going on throughout the Christian world about something called a prosperity gospel. And a prosperity gospel is simply this. It's simply when we believe that if we do the right things, say the right things, if we really have faith in God, then things will all go well for us, right? That if we just trust God enough, if we just do enough, if all these things line up, then God's going to, going to take care of us and everything is going to be well. You'll never have any problems, you'll never have any struggles, because if you just really trust God, then things will turn out for you. And I know that may sound crazy where you're sitting, but that's a major thought throughout our Christian lives, throughout the Christian world. But I think it's also something that is more at home. This is really what the, the, the Israelites are dealing with in Malachi. They, got, they had believed that if they did the right things, they're saying, God, w- did we not obey you? Did we not obey? Did we not repent in the days of Zechariah and Haggai? Did we not turn to you and we did exactly what you told us to do? And now the things that you said were going to happen are not happening. And year after year is going by and the countries and the people around us who have no regard for God, they seem to be doing well and we are not. And so they're starting to go, God, you said these things and they're not happening. You said you would give us shiny stuff. We don't have any shiny stuff, and now we're angry, right? Sounds like little children, right? We're mad. In fact, we hate you, God. We're upset, right? And I know that sounds crazy for us to say, but I believe it's probably more at home in each of us than we really realize. We too buy into such a thought, more than you and I probably are aware I know as a pastor for years, people would come to talk to me, and they would often say things like all, all their life would be falling apart, and everything is going you know, downhill, and they would say to me, I must not be living right. I must not be honoring God. I must not be in the will of God, because if I was, then none of these bad things would be happening to me, right? That's the same thing, right? And we've all bought into that in our lives many times, right? We say things like this, if I give really generously, then I'll have plenty, right? All my needs will be met. I'll I'll have a nice home. I'll be able to pay my bills. If I'm kind to people, then they'll be kind to me. If I share the gospel really well, if I'm really articulate, then people will be convinced of it and they will accept it. If I serve God faithfully, then my life will be blessed. I'll be healthy. I'll be well. I'll never lose my job. Everything will go good for me. I'll never have cancer. My kids will never get sick. If I trust God enough, then I won't have to worry about worrying and doubt and disillusionment. If I'm diligent to teach and train my kids in the gospel and to model it for them, then they will grow up to love God and live productive lives for him. You could see the if-then statements, right? If I do these things, if I love my wife or my husband well enough, then my marriage will be bliss. If I pray a lot, if I read my Bible a lot, then X, Y, and Z. If I stand for the right things, if I hold the right beliefs, if I, if I think the right way, then, right? You see how easy this is? You see, this is what the Israelites are struggling with in Malachi is not something that they had out there. It's something that's right here in every one of us. We all wrestle with this reality. Have you ever had a time in your life where you said, God, what gives? What gives? Have you ever felt that? That sense of disillusionment, I believe this is why the the psalms, right? A third of all of the psalms in the largest book of the Bible are lament psalms. And they're that way for a reason. Because life can be very confusing at times. Things don't always make sense, whether you're serving God or not. Things don't seem to add up. Things can feel like they're very much upside down from the way they ought to feel. And this is exactly where the people of God are. God had said some things and he's not in their minds coming good on what, they, what he said would happen. Things didn't turn out the way they thought. In fact, they're turning out the very opposite of the way they thought. And so what then? Let me just give quickly three things that I think are a problem in this thinking that we have. And I say we because we have this thinking, right? You wrestle with this, I wrestle with this, full disclosure, I've wrestled with this deeply in my life all the time. The problem with this thinking is, however, and the problem with the people in Malachi's day, the people of God, is that when we think this way, like God said he was going to give shiny things, he didn't give shiny things, and now I'm mad. The problem with that is, is that we, we make the object of our faith the things instead of God. There's the first problem, right? God doesn't become the object and the goal of our faith, it's the stuff, the blessings, it's all this stuff over here that becomes the goal and the object of our faith instead of God himself. He is the one who is the treasure that's hidden in a field that the man sold everything he had so that he could have that which was of ultimate value. It is God himself that is the reward. He is the blessing, ultimately not the stuff he provides, even though that is not inconsequential. It's not that it doesn't matter. It does, right? You need food on your table, correct? You want your kids to do well, correct? None of those things are inconsequential, but ultimately the reward, the goal, the aim is God himself to know him and that's why the tagline for my message today is to know God to truly know him and to treasure him it it alleviates it it protects us against the cynicism that the people of God are struggling with today they have become cynical they have become even mocking of the things of God because they're disillusioned but they have made the gifts of God the blessings of God the object the focus of their life instead of God Himself. We also struggle with God's timing. I think it's worth worth talking about, especially at Christmas, the timing of God. Think think about this for a minute. God made a promise to Abraham, correct? Let's just go back over our Bible for a minute. We'll just do a couple of these because we could do like hundreds. God God made a promise to Abraham. He said, Through you, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, and through your offspring, the son is going to, the whole world is going to be blessed, right? And so God makes this promise to Abraham and to Sarah, his wife, and, and then 20-some years go by, right? And the promise isn't fulfilled. Abraham and Sarah get really old. How old is really old? It's, it's 20 years beyond where I'm at, always. It's always 20 years out there, right? Wherever you're at, it's 20 years further, right? That's old. But, but they are well beyond having children. So in this 20 years, do you think they didn't question God? Yeah, you read the story, right? You can see the 20-some years that unfold. Abraham and Sarah, they seek to take matters into their own hands because they're saying to themselves, maybe God has forgotten his promise, or maybe God is not able to fulfill his promise. Maybe, maybe we're supposed to just do this, and, and ultimately, they questioned and they struggled with this because God's timing was not their timing, Right? Ultimately, God did fulfill his promise to Abraham and Sarah in his way, in his time, at just the right time and just the right way to show his goodness and his power and his might. But they were well beyond childbearing age and God blessed them with the son who has in fact, we know as we stand here celebrating Christmas, we know who has in fact through his offspring, the whole world is being blessed through the coming of Christ. Think about the 400, 400, think about it, not a couple hundred, 400 years that Israel was in slavery in Egypt. Not just a little while, for 400 years, they waited on God, and God did not deliver in their minds. Can you imagine the questions that they had at times? Has God forgotten us here? Where's God at here in this, right? You can just about imagine, and it, it's, it's 400 years of being mistreated, and finally, he delivers them out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, in this very context, Israel had been in exile for 70 years that turned into 90, right? Like some people got to go back, but not all of them, right, in 70 years, and all of a sudden they're slowly trickling back, but you can imagine in 70, now 90 years, the people of God are going, God, you said you were going to restore us back to the land, but it doesn't seem like this is happening, right? So, So God's timing is just the right timing. Imagine in this very book in Malachi, from the time of the end of this book, Until Matthew chapter 1 or Mark, depending on how you believe the order of the books are written. But the reality, from from the end of this book... Until the coming of Jesus, the fulfillment of the promise that a Messiah was going to come who would bless the whole world. There's 400 years that they call the silent years. They're not because nothing happened. There was a lot of stuff that happened in there historically, the Maccabean War. There's this crazy stuff that took place. But for 400 years, God did, the reason why it's called silent years, God did not speak to his people for 400 years. This is the last book where we have God speaking to the people, to his people, and then he is silent for 400 years. The promise is not fulfilled. Can you imagine the people? This is why Isaiah, when we read the Christmas story in Isaiah, it says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Right? The darkness is, it seems like forever, right? It seems like the timing is like, come on God, when are you going to fulfill this promise? And this is where the people of God are at today, they're asking that very question. When are you, God, going to be faithful to your promise? They're struggling. Now, we know Galatians tells us at just the right time, right? At just the right time, God's timing. The Bible tells us that a day A day to the Lord is like, a a day to us is like a thousand years to God. His timing is different than ours. He sees perfectly. We don't see perfectly. There's a reason why we struggle with his timing, because we don't see all that God sees. We don't understand the things of God. This is what makes God, God, and you and I not God, right? But it still creates the battle, right? And so, so be careful not to be too hard on the Israelites for their unbelief. Because they are living in this moment in which they are not seeing the faithfulness of God with their eyes. God is faithful. He hasn't changed. In fact, that's why this whole passage begins. And every little section in this whole book begins with the prophet, with God declaring through the prophet something about the character of God. Every single section of this book that Nick has preached on, every single one of them begins with God saying something about who he is. And then he speaks to their struggle. And in our, our text today, it's no different. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. So he begins with the with declaration to the people of God. Look, I am a God who never changes. I am, I am the same always. I don't change my mind I don't go back on my word, everything I've said, in fact, and you have thousands of years of history in the Old Testament, page after page after page, that show us that God has been absolutely faithful to all of his promises, just not in the time in which we would hope that it would happen, right? To us, it's not a timely banner, right? But it was perfect for God, and he fulfilled all of his promises, and we have tons and tons and tons of promises fulfilled And yet, the people of God still wrestle. And so God begins by simply talking about what what theologians call the immutability of God. I always love, theologians come up with really big names to call stuff. It simply means God doesn't change. That's it, right? I always love these big words, right? You get into seminary classes and they teach us all this stuff. And you go like, who cares? It means God doesn't change, right? He doesn't change his mind, right? When God says he's going to do something, he does it exactly the way he said he would do it. And in fact, God is saying that to to this group of of people. He's saying that. He's connecting his unchanging nature, the fact that he doesn't change. He's connecting that to something very specific in them. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, wiped out, taken off the earth. What he's saying is, is because I don't change, his unchanging character points to his patience and his kindness, to his true goodness. In fact, he, he qualifies this. He says, from the days of your forefathers, you have turned aside and you've not kept my statutes. Right? He's saying, you have been faithless, From the very beginning, right? You've constantly not kept my promises. You've constantly went against me. You've constantly turned aside to the right and to the left. And what has God done? God made a promise to this people that through them, that he would preserve them, and that through them he would fulfill this promise of the coming of the Messiah. And he kept his promise. And the evidence of that keeping of that promise, even before it's happened right here, He's saying it's because you're not dead. (laughs) Literally. He's just saying, I have been patient with you and I continue to be patient with you for the sake of my promises being true. That's an incredible thing to think about. He is patient. So he's saying, I don't change, therefore you're not consumed, which goes back when they say that God's not just, God's not loving. God is saying, no, no, wait a minute. I have been so good to you I have been so patient with you, so kind. I have been, in fact, the word here would be the word mercy. God did not give them. He withheld, in fact, what they actually deserved. They don't deserve anything from God, and yet God has graciously withheld his judgment, withheld his wrath from them. He's been kind to them and patient. He's not quick to judge. As Psalm 103 declares, it says that the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It's an incredible uh, reality. And so God begins by simply holding up his character and saying, this is who I am. To know who I truly am, to understand my nature and my character will protect you, Israel, will protect us from cynicism, from becoming cynical, unbelieving people who do not trust God and his promises. The second thing that the text does, however, is God, this is God speaking through the prophet Malachi, he calls them to repent, to turn. That's what the word repent means, by the way, it just means to turn around. It means that you're heading in this direction, you're heading down the trail of cynicism and unbelief, and he's saying to them, look, he's calling to them to turn around and to come back to him. Look at, look at what he says at the end of chapter 7. 7. Or at the beginning, yeah, he says, return to me at the end of 7, verse 7. Return to me. Notice that, what he says. In other words, just like we were saying at the beginning, what is the object of our faith? What is the goal? It's to come to God. It's to know God. And so God, in calling them to return, first and foremost, says, you need to re- return to me. Come back to me. And I will return to you. It's a call of repentance to them. Turn to me. And then, and then there seems to be a really strange thing here. Because they say, well, how are we supposed to return? I love this little dialogue kind of thing that goes on in the book of Malachi. They say, well, how how shall we return? How are we supposed to do this? And God's question seems really strange right after that, doesn't it? It almost seems like, huh? God asks a question. Instead of answering it, he asks a question. He says, will a man rob God? Like, what? What's that got to do with us returning? Right? What is is their... They're robbing of God. He, and then he goes, because you are robbing me. Like he just states it. Will a man rob God? And he says, you are robbing me. And then he says, but you say, how have we robbed you? And God's really clear. He says, through tithes and contributions. You're, you're not giving of your tithes and your contribution. Now, I wanted to say something right here. This is one of these great moments for pastors to be like, boy, to really hit the giving thing really hard, right? Man, this is... So you need to get on it, right? Because that's really not what this passage is about, just to be honest. The focus here is not the money or the stuff at all. The actual problem here is not the actual contribution. That's the symptom, right? That's just a symptom. That's a sign. You see, when I get mad at somebody, I tend to withhold from them. Don't you? Like, when you're mad at your spouse, are you all lovey-dovey? I don't think so, right? You get a little bit cold and stiff. You know, you're like kind of giving the cold shoulder, like the stiff arm. You know, like you want it to be known. Hey, uh, we do the same with God, don't we? See, the people of God, they're, they're upset with God. They don't think he's being faithful to his promise. They don't think he's loving and good. And so they're giving him the stiff arm. They're giving him the cold shoulder. And part of how they're doing that. And this happens to us, too, when we get mad about something. We're not very generous with our stuff to somebody that we're not happy with, right? That's just normal, right? That's normal life. And so, so the, the giving to the temple in order to provide for worship and to provide for the priest, that's what the tithe was all about. And in fact, it wasn't even money for the most part in the Old Testament. They were supposed to bring the first part of their crops, right, their, their harvest. And so they would, they would harvest their crop, and they were supposed to bring the first tenth of their crop, into the temple, and that was how they. That's how they did grain offerings. That's how they fed the priests. That's that's how they supported the ministry in the temple, and and so they would go out and harvest. I love that too. Like you were supposed to give the best, the first one. I, I, if if I grew up on a farm, right? I love to. You, many of you have heard this. I love to go home to Kansas. I get to drive the combine every once in a while. Absolutely love it. But when you when you harvest, you start with the best crop first, because you don't want the hail to come take out the good wheat, right? So you leave the stuff that's got weeds in it, you know, down in the slough area, and the stuff that's a little wet, and, you know, it's not going to be the stuff that's like 30 bushel the acre. You're going to cut that last. You're going to cut the 90 bushel acre stuff first, right? And God says, bring the first part, the first tenth of your crop. Don't wait till the end and cut the sloughs out around, you know, and the weeds, and bring that to me. Isn't that what Israel was doing too? Remember back in chapter 1? They were bringing, instead of, a, instead of a lamb without blemish, they were bringing crippled Elmer with three legs limping in there. That's what they were giving to God because that was saying something about how they valued God because they were mad at God. They, they were doubting God. And so their actions reflected that. And here God is saying, here's a way you can return to me. Here's the evidence that you have left me. It's because you're not, you're not actually giving to me, You're not actually, it, giving, by the way, the tithe was also a demonstration of my trust in God. Like if you, it, it was a way to demonstrate that I truly trusted God. I'm going to give him a portion of what he's blessed me with, and I'm going to give him that. It's a way of demonstrating my thankfulness and my gratitude to God, and it's a way of demonstrating that I trust him. I trust him with all that I have. And so the real issue here isn't the money, It's the fact that they have forgotten God. That's the real issue. They had forgotten God and therefore they lacked gratitude. They were ungrateful because they had forgotten that God is the one who's blessed them at all in the first place. In fact, they've forgotten that they are getting to have this conversation with God because He's been good to them. They've forgotten all of that. Isn't that a common experience that we have as well? We forget the blessings of God. We forget His goodness over and over again. And God has to remind us through circumstances. We become ungrateful at times in our lives. We lack gratitude. We become complainers and we get on the edge of cynicism and unbelief, right? And God has to pull us back. I love what Deuteronomy chapter 8 says. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, you you can read it later on, but the first 10 verses of chapter 8, is God reminding the Israelites. Remember, Deuteronomy is where they're just beginning to enter into the promised land that he promised them. And God is reminding them of some stuff. And the first 10 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 8, he's reminding them of how he took care of them. He says, you've been in the wilderness for 40 years. You wore shoes on your feet that you did not buy. He provided them. You eat food that fell from the sky that you did not make. I gave you that. You had a pillar of cloud by day guiding you along the way as to where to go. You had a pillar of fire by night so you wouldn't get lost. And most importantly, you had this thing called the tabernacle, which was the evidence and the sign that I, the Lord your God, am with you. I am living in your midst in this tabernacle, which is, by the way, when Christmas talks about God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. It means he tabernacled among us. He, he came to us and became like us, like us and lived among us. And so he's reminding them, look, I have been faithful. I've taken care of you. And then he says, in verse 11, he says, so when you get into the land and you settle down, And you build homes, you plant crops and those crops start to produce and you start to make all kinds of money and build wealth and you have children and you get married and all this stuff happens to you. He says in that moment, he gives them a warning, do not forget the Lord your God. He says, be careful that you do not say, if you read the last 11 through 20, he says, be careful that you do not say, it is by my might and my power that I have all of these things. And you forget, he says, that it is God who has given you the ability to make money, to earn, to do things with your hands. It is God who's actually blessed you with the ability to do what you get to do. And he says, so don't forget the Lord your God. The people of God in Malachi's day they had forgotten God. They'd forgotten all of that, and therefore they have, they lack ingratitude, just like we can oftentimes lack gratitude. I love what. Corinthians, if you've got your Bible, we will turn here for a second. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it's a great text that really just talks about the heart of generosity. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul, the, the Jerusalem church, the Jewish churches in Jerusalem were being persecuted. And they weren't allowed to work. They were being shut out of the commerce and the community, and therefore they were, they were hungry they were in serious straits. They were not able to support themselves, to support their families. They were, they were really struggling. And so Paul spends most of the New Testament, by the way, most of the times in these books when you hear at the end of the book what Paul's doing, he's running around the countryside to all these Gentile churches. He's taken up an offering. And he's taken up an offering from all these other churches in order to take it to Jerusalem so that these brothers and sisters who are doing well can support these who are really in hard times. Right? And so Paul comes to them, he's, he's sort of challenging the Corinthians because they were the wealthiest church among the churches, and yet they were lagging behind in their generosity. And so he's challenging them, and after he challenges them, he says this, this is how he explains it, look at verse 6, I believe it's verse 6, yes it is, chapter 9, verse 6, my eyes are failing me these days. He says, so the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, that is not forced, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now listen to this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Look at verse 10. For he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply seed for sowing and increase your harvest of righteousness. I want you to see that for a minute because it's tempting to read Malachi here, who God says, listen to what he says here in Malachi chapter 3, where God says to the children of Israel, he says, because you've, you've withheld your contributions and tithes, you are cursed with a curse, which is what I, Deuteronomy chapter 8 said what happened. He says, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. By the way, note that he's, he, he blames the whole nation, not just the ones who are doing it. We're going to see in a minute there were faithful people and those who weren't faithful, but he blames the whole nation. You're all guilty. That's hard for us in our very individualistic culture we live in, right? We say, well, I'm, I'm not the one. You know, it's, it's those other guys over there. It's that other church. They're the ones not giving, Right? We're the ones that are faithful, right? And he says, no, you're all in this together. <laughs> you're one body. You, you, if one of you is guilty, you all did it. Not being faithful. He confronts the whole nation. And he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to, te- to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If, see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessings until there's no need. I will rebuke the, the one who devours my fields. He's going to protect that so that there's nothing that's going to devour the crops. He's going to make sure that everything bears fruit. All the nations are going to call you blessed. It's tempting for us to read that and go, well, there it is. That sounds like a prosperity thing right there, right? If we do these things, God's going to make sure all of our needs are taken care of. So God, if, I, if I'm faithful with my stuff, you're going to give me more stuff, right? That seems like a logical conclusion. But then it's interesting, that doesn't always happen that way, does it? <laughs> so maybe that's not what it means. In fact, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, notice what the focus is. The focus is, he says, he says, sow, if you reap sparingly, you're gonna sow sparingly, or you're gonna, you're gonna, if you sow sparingly, you're gonna reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you're gonna reap bountifully. And then what's the focus? He's not saying tit for tat. If you give five, you're gonna get six, <laughs> right? right he's not saying that the whole focus in there he says so that all grace may abound to you and God will increase your harvest of righteousness right the reward is the very righteousness of God in fact he says i didn't read this part if you go down through verse 11 and further he says that it's going to well up into thanksgiving to God you see what's the reward there paul is saying that your generosity the reward of your generosity is that you just get closer to God. It wells up in thanksgiving to God. It causes my heart to treasure God more than I treasure my stuff. It keeps the object of my faith in the right place, right? And so we have to be careful that we, that we don't misunderstand. And if you can go home and read that 2 Corinthians 9 passage, it's incredible, all the way through. But Paul is saying that the ultimate goal is that people would be thankful to God, that they would have him and him alone. And our generosity is a way for us to demonstrate that we trust God ultimately. And so he's saying to them, return to me. And one of the ways you can return to me, it's not so much about, now go get some money or go get some stuff and bring it to me. That, they need to do that. But he's actually confronting the fact that they've forgotten the Lord. They've forgotten. They've gotten off track. Lastly, I didn't know what to say in these two passages, so I have this really cool point in your bulletin. It's called Two Groups and Two Conversations. That's when a pastor runs out of creativity. <laughs> it's like nothing cool. It's like two groups of people, two conversations. There we go. Um, that's all I got. And so, but, but there really is. There are two groups of people here. Verse 13 is the beginning of this. He says, your words, uh, God is actually accusing them. He says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have they been hard against you? And then he says, you have said. Now, I want you to note that you have said. They haven't said this to God. They're not having conversations with God right now. They're having this conversation amongst themselves. So they're, they're talking amongst themselves. There's a group of people Amongst the people of God who are talking amongst themselves, and here's the heart of the issue that they're wrestling with. They're saying amongst themselves, it's vain to serve God. What profit is it to keep his commands? To go to the temple, that's what that mourning means, to go to the temple and repent and mourn and grieve and worship God. What's the point? And, And you can have a little bit of sympathy for them, Because they're also looking out, it says, says because we look around, right, and we call the arrogant blessed, and evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, and they escape. Now, there's the heart of the matter that they're struggling with. They're looking at all the people around them. You ever done that? You look at all the people around you, they're doing good, they're driving the rules voice. They seem to be really happy and they hate God. don't have anything to do with God. And here you are, seeking to be faithful, to love God, to obey Him, to, to, to be faithful to what He has called you to do and who He's called you to be. You're clinging on to Him and your life is falling apart. Think about our missionary right now in India. Right? Can you imagine like our missionary in India, he's, he's literally giving his life to see the kingdom of God come on earth as is in heaven, in his neighborhood, in his country, and because of his faithfulness to God, he's now sitting in jail, and he may not see his family for years to come. He may not watch his kids grow up. Can you imagine the wrestling internally with that? And yet, and yet we sometimes are mad at God because the dryer broke, right? <laughs> it kind of puts things in perspective, Right? <laughs> But, but this is what they're saying. They're saying, God, all these people who don't love you at all, they seem to be doing really well. Now, you know that's a farce, right? When you start comparing yourself to other people, you don't know their life typically, right? We always look at some and go, man, they seem to have it all put together. And then you actually get to know them, and you find out, oh, they're a mess, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are messed up and those in denial. That's it, right? Which one are you, all right? That's the reality, right? But we often look at other people, especially people who just seem to be, have no cares about God. They don't care about anybody. They're totally self-sufficient. They got everything figured out, it seems, and they seem to be doing so well, and your life is not. And you're saying, God, what gives, right? This is the, this is the heart of the matter. Now, I want to just pause here for a minute because God does not rebuke sincere disillusionment. He does not rebuke people. That's why you go back to the Psalm 13, right? Psalm 13, the psalmist, in fact, a third of the psalms, but the psalmist is constantly saying things to God like, God, where are you? Why have you hidden your face from me? Why are you not with me? What is going on? The psalmist is crying out to God with very raw and very real things. And he's saying to God, God, what is going on, right? But notice the difference between the psalmist and Psalm 13. Who is he talking to? He's talking to God. God. The people in this section here are not talking to God. They have given up on talking to God. And this is why God is rebuking them. God never rebukes the psalmist. You read the questions the psalmist asks, you never hear a rebuke. You never hear God say like, what's your problem, Chris? You know, why are you struggling with that? What's your deal, man? No, no, no. When you go to God with sincere confusion, with sincere anger, With sincere and honest talk before God. He opens his arms and he brings you in. It says that he comforts us, that he listens to us, that he cares about the things that we are struggling with, genuine struggles, and we have many of them, right? He cares about these things. But that's not where this group of people are because when I read this the first time, I'm sitting here going, God, why are you so tough on these people? Don't they have a legitimate struggle? Right? I think we would all struggle with where they're at. Why, why is he so hard? But the reason why is because they have truly become cynics. They have given up on God. They are not having the conversation with him anymore. They have stopped going to him. In fact, they're even saying, why bother to go to worship? Why bother? What's the point? I'm not going to obey God anymore. I'm not going to go to worship anymore. I'm just done. I'm done. And there's a whole bunch of people in our world right now that are at that place. That's very different than those who are truly lamenting before God. It's very different than this next group. There's there's those who are faithful. Because it goes from that group to go within the body, within the people of God, there's also a group of people who who are turning to God. They're experiencing the same circumstances, right? That's what's incredible about this. The same circumstances are being experienced. They both stink. They're both in the same awful place. Seeing the wicked prosper, Looking at their own circumstances saying, God, we've we've been faithful to you and the promises are not fulfilled. They're in the same place, but their response is different. They fear God. They look to God like the psalmist. In fact, in Psalm 13, one of my favorite laments. In Psalm 13, the, the psalmist just lays it out, man. Like he is not holding back. He's upset. He's confused. He's disillusioned. And yet at the end of the psalm, it says, but God, I trust in your unfailing Love. In, your, in fact, he says, I trust in the steadfast love of the Lord because it never fails. So the psalmist and this group of people experiencing tough things, but they're saying, God, I'm just going to cling, I'm just going to cling to who you are. Nothing else makes sense, but all I have is I know that you are faithful, that you do love me, that you will fulfill your promise, even though I do not see it right now, and I'm upset about it, and it hurts. But God, I trust in your steadfast love. That's all I've got. You ever been there in your life? With all you have is the character of God. And in fact, that's all you need. You just need him. That's all we need. That's why he sent a savior, and he didn't send send a financial advisor, right? He didn't send a marriage counselor. He sent Jesus, because what you ultimately need is Jesus. What you need to know is him. And this group of people, it says they feared the Lord when they were speaking with each other as well, and they're talking about the Lord. And it says God paid attention to them. He, he even has a book of remembrance that was written before him of those who feared him. I love that. Like a book written. Isn't that great? Like he's got a book. He, God, remembers those who fear him, those who cling on to him in the midst of difficulties. They shall be mine, says the Lord. They belong to him. They're his children. He loves them. I love this. It says, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I'm assuming when he says that, he's talking about the end of time. That treasured possession that God is gathering to himself even now, he says, in that day when I, when I make up my treasured possession, I'm going to spare them the same, way, the same way a father spares his son. I'm going to preserve them. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to love them. Every People from every tribe and tongue and nation of the world, God is going to take care of us. He says, and then, verse 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not. You see, the Israelites had lost that perspective. They didn't see any distinction. And God says, on that day, on that day you will see. You will see the righteous and the wicked, and you'll see a clear distinction between those who love me and those whom I preserve and care for and those who hate me and turn away from my ways. I don't know where you're at this morning, but uh, just take a moment, right? Maybe, Maybe you're this morning, maybe you've bought into some kind of prosperity gospel. Maybe you're trusting in the shiny stuff, in the blessings of God, the promises that God is gonna do this or do that, and you're trusting in those things, and you've, you're not trusting in God himself. And maybe you're disillusioned, maybe you're wrestling, full confession, that's where I'm at. I've been there and am there. Right? When you see hard things and you go, God, what gives? But maybe today, maybe this Christmas is a time to be reminded that God knows exactly what you need, and he knows the exact timing of when you need it. And at just the right time, God sent his son, the most important gift. In fact, at the end of that passage, in Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians 9, at the very end of that passage, it says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gifts. And you know what's so awesome about that? He wasn't referring to the offering that they were taking up. He's referring to Jesus that's the gift. The offering is just a means, It's just a thing, a channel, a conduit. What they need is Jesus. They need to see his faithfulness and to see him work mightily. Maybe that's you this Christmas. And maybe today is a day to renew your desire, to just cling to the steadfast love of the Lord, that he has been faithful and he will be faithful in the future. And Christmas time is just a is a glaring, like, neon sign saying, I have kept my promise. God has kept his promise, and therefore, he will keep all of his promises. Not in my time, trust me, I got a different timetable. But he will be faithful to his promises, to you and to me and to everyone who fears the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for a passage that maybe even just reminds us of the hard things at Christmas. And even Christmas can sometimes be a time where where we're confronted with things that hurt, relationships that are broken, challenges and struggles, financial problems. We want to do this for our kids, and we can't. So God, I pray that this Christmas we might turn to you whether we're confused or disillusioned or whether we're jumping with joy and we can't be more excited today about Christmas this year, whichever one of those places, God, may we be like those in this text who fear you, who know you, who understand that you're a God who doesn't change and that you will be absolutely faithful in your time, in your way to every promise that you've made to us. And so may we be those who cling to the steadfast love of the Lord.